the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. One young exile with uncompromising faith. This is God's grand plan to achieve the unimaginable. Well, we continue our series in Daniel. Now, I need to remind you that we are in the last couple of chapters. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 hang together. Chapters 10, or chapter 10, is much like an introduction into chapters 11 and 12. And so today, we'll be in chapter 11. What's significant, I think, is behind chapter 11 is a question that is common for all of us. Why is God giving us these prophetic words, and what does he want us to do with them? Why does he give us such detail, and what does he want his people to know or have because of it? So if you have your Bible, if you have a device, I want to encourage you to open to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah, I'm Isaiah. Are we in Daniel? <laughs> <laughs> Daniel chapter 11. What's odd is I was looking at Hosea, saying Isaiah, but knowing I should go to Daniel. <laughs> of course, all of them are great prophetic books, so if we shouldn't be in Daniel this morning, maybe we'll jump over to Isaiah, and then we'll pick up a little Hosea and then swing back into Daniel. If you're able to stand, could I invite you to stand we're going to read just a few verses in Daniel 11, starting in verse 2. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Then, or the king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he, and he'll rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she'll not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed, together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south but will retreat into his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood 
and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Let's just pause right there. Father, as we read your word, we're just drawn in to the detail. And even if it's confusing, even if it's not clear for those not as informed about some of the details of the history you're laying out, God, would you use this time as we study your word in Daniel to show us something about your heart, something about your power, something about your love for your people. But most of all, God, too, would you show us how you are leading history in the direction you want it to go. And nothing, nothing, nothing will come up against your plan. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Grab a seat. As we look at this in Daniel this morning, we recognize that a lot is happening. And even in the prayer, I'm just assuming some of us are not familiar with some of these details, and that's okay. And so then it it just raises a question, do, do we need to have all these details? So I could give you a number of things this morning, uh, some dates and kings and just lay out a lot, and we'll do some of that, but I really don't want to get lost in the detail. I really don't want us to walk out of here and say, well, what does it matter that this king from the north did this to the king of the south, and then this king from the north, this king, and and just lay them all out because we just get confused where we begin to see what God is doing overall in this passage. Now remember, the Jews are already returning to their homeland. They were in exile. They were brought to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar because, not Nebuchadnezzar, but because God recognized his people were defying him. They were disobeying him. They were ignoring him. And he said, enough is enough is enough. And he says, now is a time for some time out. And he brings them into Babylon. Well, as it was prophesied by Jeremiah, this time out would last for 70 years. 70 years, and now the 70 years is over, and they're starting to return. And so this is where we're picking up the story, and what happened with Daniel was he was given by God some visions, some dreams of what was going to happen in the future. And these dreams were very unsettling. He struggled with them because as he was reading Jeremiah the prophet, it looked like they were going to go back to the land and things were going to be all good. And in his dreams, he's realizing God's got a bigger plan that's unimaginable, and Daniel didn't like what he was imagining. In the kindness of God, he says, Daniel, let me explain in greater detail what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. So that's where we are in the story. So this morning, I want to begin with this first idea, and that is that God decrees in the book of truth, God decrees, he determines the future. His decrees will determine the future. Now, regardless of what you think, even regardless of what I think, as many superpowers as we have in a world today as many as these great nations, and they think they've got all power, and they think they're leading things, 
God is reminding us in Daniel, he's the one ultimately leading it, his decrees. Now, why do I have this book of truth? Because we left off in Daniel chapter 10 with this idea of this book of truth, this book of truth. And what was happening was, remember, we had some angels. We had Michael, the archangel. Michael is the angel over Israel. And he was going to tell Daniel what is in this book of truth. And this book of truth are the decrees of God. These are the decrees, the commands of God, the, the dictates of God of what's going to happen and in what order. Now, we need to realize, as we saw last time, that there is a spiritual war going on. And a lot of us don't appreciate the nature of the spiritual war. So as we tried to lay out last time, there are angels that God has over nations of the world. And from that, we can begin to extract because we can see other passages of Scripture where there's angels over geographical regions. And, and so there's a hierarchical that a structure. That's why we have an archangel. But then those angels have other angels and they're orchestrating this spiritual battle that is taking place. And it's a spiritual battle that's not merely against angels, but they're against your souls and my soul. They're against your family and my family. They're against your community and my community. And whatever they can do to cause chaos, to cause confusion, to cause all kinds of destruction, that's what they are about. Now, there's good angels I use the word angels for uh, the good angels, and I use the word demons for bad angels. They're all angels, but some angels rebelled against God, and they're demons. These demons are set up in the same kind of structure. There's demons that have a head demon, the ultimate head demon is Satan himself, and he has a hierarchical structure. He's got these demons that are over nations, they're over states, they're over communities, they're over neighborhoods. It just breaks down, and so that's why when you read the book of Revelation, you're going to read that there's legions upon legions of angels. There's all these angels, and they're bringing this spiritual battle. Now, let's just pause to make sure we're all on the same page of how these demons work, right? So a lot of people get confused. They, they, they think that it's just a, a spiritual battle out there, but it doesn't touch us here. Demons work in a variety of ways. I can't lay out all their schemes this morning. That would be a good couple of messages, and I've done that in the past. But one of the things they do is they, they love to plant stray thoughts in people's minds, they love to just put like what Paul describes as a fiery dart that springs into our heart that is an attitude, it's sometimes a perspective, it's a mindset, but they just keep hammering you. And, and these doubts or these, these words come in, she hates me, she hates me, she hates me. Or it could be someone just themselves saying, I hate myself. I need to die. I need to kill myself. Those are murderous thoughts, often, not always, but often from demons planting. These, these fiery darts get through, and they get lodged in our mind, in our thinking. Then what happens is sometimes a demon will cast doubts, right? We can see how 
the, the devil dealt with Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say? And so what happens is a demon starts questioning or doubting, causing you to doubt the word of God. Does the Bible really mean this? Does the Bible really say this? Is God really this kind of God? How can God be loving and God do, right? All kinds of doubt get planted. Well, these are demonic actions. Now, lest you think that they cannot take over people, we read all through the Bible how demons somehow, not only from the outside, but somehow internally start working on people. The key phrase in the New Testament is he or she has a demon or, and I'm, I'm speaking literally, how the Greek literally reads, he or she has a demon or it will use a verbal form and say he or she is demonized. The Bible does not use the word possession and it does not talk about this idea that we often get oppression and possession. Those are nice constructs. They help us sometimes explain when the Bible describes a demon coming out of a person, it sounds like he was possessed. And so we use the word possessed. I prefer to use just the way the Bible literally uses it. He or she has a demon which we're not clear exactly, is that demon attached to them, walking side by side with them, or is it more serious that the demon has taken up residency in them and they're more demonized? And then when they're demonized, there's all kinds of mental illnesses that come with this. There can be all kinds of destructive behaviors that come from this. So, this is the way demons work and roll in our world, and Daniel is opening this up. Now, I just got to be honest with you. I've had people come up to me after a service, and they'll say, okay, Pastor Tom, we're private now. Do you really believe, do you really believe that there's demons? Don't you just think that and then when they use that phrase, don't you think, it means they've already drawn the conclusion <laughs> and they want me to think what they think. Don't you think that this is just archaic or ancient language to describe what we would say as a medical condition, some kind of psychological condition, some kind of illness? And I'll look at them and I'll say, no. No, I think that the Bible makes it really clear is there's an unseen realm that's operating against the seen realm. And maybe we've got it wrong. Maybe we've got so sophisticated in our scientific mindset that we've eliminated anything supernatural because we only want to look at things naturally because that's all that science can do. But what if there's another whole world that's out there? And that's what Daniel's opening up to us today. So what we want to see is that regardless of the spiritual battle and how it impacts the world, that God's decrees, they're written in this book of truth, they determine, these decrees will determine 
the future. Now, we didn't read this this morning, but there's a phrase called the appointed time. At the appointed time. And this comes in chapter 11, verses 27, 29, and 35. And so the Bible reader, i.e. you and me this morning, we ask ourselves, who appointed the time? Well, it doesn't say God appointed the time, but it's the only one who could have appointed the time. And so what we see in verse 27 is these two kings, north and the south, their hearts are bent on evil. Now, certainly their hearts could be naturally bent on evil, but because we have an angelic realm going on, I think also these angels are inciting, these fallen angels are inciting these two kings to do even more evil. And it says in verse 27, that they'll lie to each other, but to no avail, because an end will come at the appointed time. Well, who appoints that time? God appoints the time. He says, I've had enough with you two kings. I'm moving you off the scene, and we're moving on. Or in verse 29, at the appointed time, he will avoid uh, uh, invade the south again. God's saying, here's my timetable. And it's going to be according to my timetable. Verse 35, for the end will come. It says, for it will come, talking about the end at the appointed time. God has determined the exact boundaries of this world. Now that is a statement of faith. You're going to have to ask yourself, and only you can answer it, do you believe that God has appointed these times. If you say yes, I want to encourage you to come on Easter Sunday. If you say no, I want to encourage you to come on Easter Sunday. Because <laughs> we're going to talk further in another place in Romans about God appointing boundaries. So God decrees determine the future. Secondly, ruler after ruler comes and goes, but God's plan prevails. It's my second idea here that ruler after ruler comes and goes, but God's plan prevails. Now, I've already said I do not want to just list king and give their dates, but secular historians, let's forget the Bible for a moment. Let's even forget Christian historians. Secular historians based on Daniel 11 can start identifying the various kings that are listed or they're, they're talking about by the descriptions. They're so specific, they can say, oh, this is the king of, this is the king of the south, this is the king of the north. We're going to do a little bit of that so you get a flavor of it, and then we're going to peel away because it just cycles through over and over. Let's look closely at verse 2. Verse 2, it says, now then, I tell you the truth, this is Angel speaking to him because of the book of truth, three more kings will arise in Persia. Three more kings, and he's talking about prominent kings because when you start listing out the dates, there's even more kings than the three, but there's a specific reason he's getting into these three kings that arise in Persia, and then a fourth will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, that is his fourth Persian king, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. 
Now, remember, we've already seen these dreams and these statues that were going to move from the uh, Babylonian Empire into the Medo-Persian Empire into the Greek Empire. We've already seen all this. This is getting into even more detail. Then, skipping to verse 3, or 3 and 4, he goes on, Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases, right? We've already read this. His empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of the heavens. It will no longer go to descendants, nor will it have power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Well, at the end of the Persian Empire, we have the Greek Empire, and Alexander the Great comes in. And if you know the story of Alexander the Great, what happens with him? He dies, he has no descendants, and his empire gets divided up between four of his generals. So I've given you a, pu- a picture here. The book of truth, God's decrees, lays out there's going to be three Persian kings. Then there's this fourth Persian king. We read about him in Esther, the book of Esther. This is Esther's husband, right? We begin to see it. And then even some other Persian kings come in. That's why I'm using some arrows. But then eventually this one called Alexander the Great comes in. And this description, even secular historians read this and they say there's no one else but Alexander the Great because his empire, and he was a phenomenal leader, he takes over at about 20 years old, he dies at 32, so in 12 years he conquers all these nations, empires, and now is the dominant force in the world and dies at 32, no heir, everything gets divided up, parceled up with the four generals. So we have this book of truth, we've got Xerxes. After these four generals, the four winds, from verse 5 to 35, we didn't read all this, but if we did, It's these battles essentially between these two kings, the kings of the north and the king of the south. So two of Alexander the Great's generals, Ptolemy and Seleucus, get the most power. The two others kind of drop out, but the two, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, start fighting each other and battling. And you read about the daughter, and they try to manipulate through marriage. They're going to infiltrate through some kind of alliance of marriage. And of course, that all falls apart. And there's salacious details in all this. There's murder. There's deception. I mean, all the things that families are made of today, right? Just the brokenness. Well, that's what was going on there as they were were fighting, and, and they're warring over this. And this went on for decades after decades of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies fighting against each other. So we see this, the king of the north, they're up in Syria, and they're also in Babylonia. And then you have the the Ptolemies down in Egypt, the kings of the south, and they're battling. And that's what you're reading about. And you could just go through, you could identify these different kings, you could identify these battles. Again, you can read it in secular history, you can read it right here in in the scriptures. As we think about this tug of war, the picture I want you to get in mind is a picture of a cycle. And I call this earthly powers and rulers. 
or earthly rulers and powers. And what happens is a ruler rises, a ruler grows, and then a ruler falls. And that's what you have. You have it with the Seleucids. Just read verses 5 to 35. One rises, one grows to power, and then he gets knocked off. And it's a cycle. Now, why did I use the word powers? Because behind every king, behind every king is a demon. Behind every nation is a king, uh, is a demon. Behind every king is this demon. And so these are the powers at work. You dive into Ephesians chapter 6, and what do you have? You have these spiritual battles, these rulers, powers that are working. This leads us to Antiochus Epiphanes, and that's where we begin to see a shift taking place. So we're going to look just for a moment at Daniel 11, verses 21 and 31. Daniel 11 says, he will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifices." Then he will set up the abomination that causes desolation with flattery. He will corrupt those who violated the covenant. But the people, the people who know their God will firmly resist. They will stand strong. So we begin to see in this section this one called Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And he comes in, he is a Seleucid, and he comes in and he's so outraged against the Jews. Now why? They're God's people. They're God's people. You're a God's people. You're going to get attacked. That, that, that's some of the big takeaways here that we begin to see. So what happens with Antiochus, Epiphanes, he is this wicked tyrant. He's described here as a contemptible person. He hates the Jews. He desecrates the temple by sacrificing swine in the Holy of Holies. He sets, or sets up a, a uh, figure of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. And that is the abomination that causes desolation. He burned the scriptures. He forbid the Jews to exercise their religious observances, which included uh, circumcision. It included Sabbath worship. He stopped all of that, all of that. And so out of that, eventually, he gets knocked off. We got our cycle going again, and the Jews again dedicate their temple, and we can read about Jesus celebrating this victory in John chapter 10, verses 22 and 23, the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights, or sometimes it's called Hanukkah. And so what happens is we begin to see these feasts get celebrated because of the victory of the Jews. And so what we do see is that the people who know their God are not tricked. This is an important phrase for you and me today because there is a lot going on 
And with all this AI information coming out and all these changes, all these ways they can manipulate videos and change pictures and alter all kinds of things, you and I are going to have a really difficult time understanding, is this a real video? Is this a true voice? They can take someone and put their voice into a person. All they have to do is download enough information. They'll grab all the keywords that person tends to use. They'll manipulate it a little bit. And all of a sudden, you have a whole new statement being made. And you're going to ask yourself, I used to trust that person. I used to believe that person told the truth. And now you won't even know if the person even said that. You'll have no idea from a human perspective, what in the world is going on. But people who know their God will be able to resist. And I can't urge you any stronger than I am, this is a time to be in your Bible. This is a time to know the Word of God. It's not a luxury anymore because people are going to take the Word of God and they're going to manipulate it. And you are going to have to be like the Bereans. You're going to have to examine the word and know the word in order to make sure that what's being said about the word is accurate. You are no longer going to be able to rely on anyone but the Holy Spirit, you and those that are in the word together. We are moving into an unprecedented time in world history. I don't know where it's going to go. I don't say these things to scare. I don't say it to confuse. Just looking at the things that you're looking at. I'm reading the papers. I'm reading blogs, listening to podcasts, watching the news, all this. And you can see where it's going. And it's going to become more and more complicated. Do not forget that there's a spiritual war in all of this. So let me close with just a couple ideas here. The prophecy gives us perspective and calms fears. Remember I asked the question, why is God doing this and what does he want to do with it? First of all, why? God wants to give us perspective. He wants you and me to see that he is in control. He wants no confusion in our hearts and minds that he is leading history. He doesn't want anyone to doubt that he is a sovereign God. So when I read evangelical scholars that are saying Daniel has so much detail, there's no way it could have been written ahead of time. I'm like, where are they getting this from? They'll say in their same breath that God knows the future, but they won't allow God to write the future. It makes no sense to me. If someone could explain it to me, they'll say, well, there's pseudo pseudo uh, prophecies. And yes, there are. Other people have copied these things and write it down. Well, why do they think that God has to do what these others are doing? God is not beholden to anybody. He is sovereign, meaning he is independent. He is holy. He is outside of all this. And he is saying, I'm telling you where history is going and I'm in control, and I want to give you perspective. Second Peter chapter 3 says this, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, and we are in the last days right now, you need to understand scoffers will come scoffing and follow their own desires. They will say, where is this coming? Remember Jesus said he's coming back? And they're mocking Jesus. Where is he? Where is he? He said he's coming back. It's 2,000 years later. Where is he? They're mocking 
Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But these mockers deliberately forget that there's a book of truth that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed. God spoke and things happened. The earth was created regardless of what science says. And I am not anti-science. I am so pro-science. I am big on science. I want our best students to go and be the best scientists. But I want it tied to the word of God. But now I've got to close because I've said that God wants to calm our fears, our fears, And there's no other way to close than to read a little bit out of the book of Revelation. The last book of the Bible, verse 11 and 12, chapter 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before before me was a white horse. This is John saying, before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Guess who that is? That's Jesus our conquering king. I told you he's coming back as king. It says it. Here's why I believe it. With justice, he judges. I told you he's coming back as a judge too, didn't I? I say it over and over. He's coming back as king and he's coming back as judge. And that's a description right here. And he makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on the head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Now I'm going to skip just a little bit to verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their names gathered together to make war against the rider. They're going to make war against Jesus Christ. Remember the commander that we saw back in chapter 10? They're making war against him. Remember I told you things cycle around? Guess what? They're cycling around at the end of time. Making war against the rider on the horse of his army. And then, let me keep reading. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, the false trilogy we taught back in uh, Revelation, is now being captured, being destroyed. With these signs, he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake and burning sulfur. So God takes care of them. And then just let me wrap up with the final picture. Verse chapter 21. Then I saw, this is John getting a vision, a new heavens and a new earth. The old earth, or the first earth, and the first heaven has passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed, for her husband. That's how it's going to end. God's got it all. God's got it all. And he wants to calm you and me today, just reminding us that he's got it under control. We don't need to fear, but he does tell us, stand firm, resist, stay in the word. It's going to be hard. Did everyone hear that? It's going to be hard. Jesus said, in this world, you will have hardship. Expect it. Anticipate it. But he has given us his Holy Spirit to cause us to stand strong and firm. It is so good. Let's pray. Father, oh, Father, I love it. You're the same God in the book of Daniel. 
You answered Daniel's prayers. Why wouldn't you answer ours? Jesus said, what person, if, if, if he asks or she asks for a loaf of bread, the Father won't give a loaf of bread. Not only do you answer prayers, you're in control. You were in control in the time of Daniel, and you're in control of the time right now. God, let us see clearly. Let us believe this. Let us embrace this. And then, God, by your grace and by the power of your spirit, let us walk out of here this morning with a total, a, a total sense of calm and shalom because you're in control. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.